Please pray with me. Father, I pray that this morning we would hear what you have for us, what you long for us, what you are planning to do with us. Amen. I feel very far away. You may have heard before the argument that conservatives are necessarily pessimists and liberals are necessarily optimists. Now, before you throw a hymnal at me and thus reveal that you indeed are a pessimistic conservative, I'm not actually endorsing this argument. It's just an interesting starting place, and I'm definitely not going to preach about politics. In some ways, the argument actually makes sense. Conservatives, by their definition, are trying to conserve something that went before and seems to be slipping away. And liberals, by definition, think that the world used to be awful, but are hopeful that with the right policies, we can make it wonderful. One's backward-looking. One's forward-looking. Again, I'm not endorsing the argument. All of us likely have places, no matter our politics, where we are pessimistic. And all of us likely have places, no matter our politics, where we are optimistic. But it is interesting that conservatives tend to see the past as the golden age, the best period, and see the world slipping away from it and wish they could go back to the past. And liberals do tend to view the future that they will make as the best period, provided, again, that they get their policies enacted. Those two positions actually exist in theological camps. Think with me. How many times have you heard or seen or felt the idea that our denomination used to be perfect until, and everything's been downhill since then, if only we could go back to the golden age? In a more global sense, across denominations, you might feel the sense that the world was perfect prior to the fall. But everything's been downhill ever since then. It's doom and pessimism because it's all going downhill. On the other side, you might see in a denomination people thinking we're becoming better and better, more and more loving, more aware of our neighbor, and we're improving. Things are getting better. The future is bright. In a global sense, there have even been a few Christians who believe that God will bring about perfection on earth without judgment through the work of the church, that the future is bright, this optimism looking forward. We just need more faith. We need to try harder. The point is that whether in our politics or our theology, we have a tendency to identify a golden age and either think that we've left it behind and we're getting worse and worse and worse, pessimistic in our outlook, or think that it lies in front of us, and with just the right work, just the right faith, we might be able to achieve it. It's a natural way of dealing with the problems of the world. It's interesting to me that Revelation 21 makes it absolutely clear that God does not think like us. He doesn't fall into either of those camps. This is what I meant when I said I'm not going to preach politics. Don't worry. The point today is what does God see? 
What's his perspective? And what we discover is that he shares neither our optimism that things will just work out, nor our pessimism that everything has fallen apart. Look at Revelation 21.1. It doesn't say, then I saw Eden return. Then I saw things finally return to the good old days. Then I saw perfection come back. But Revelation 21.1 also does not say, and then finally, the world became a utopia because everybody decided to share their money and love one another and tolerate each other. Revelation 21.1 doesn't say either of those things. Instead, it says something totally different, a bolt out of the blue. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There's no pessimism here. The world is ruined. But there's not optimism either. Look, we can make it all right. Instead, we are offered something different, something unique. We are offered hope, hope, hope. This is where I want to land this morning, is a God who says to us, I make all things new. Not, we can fix it if we work hard enough, and not, there's no hope, no chance. A God who offers hope, I make all things new. Just as an aside, it's worth noting that both pessimism and optimism are secular responses. The biblical responses are grief and hope. Grief and hope. But that's an aside. The reality for those who wish that we could go back to Eden is that Eden, although perfect, was incomplete. It was not the goal or the purpose, the end of what God was doing. Even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, it was not the end. We weren't supposed to remain there forever and to return to it as if we could would be to totally miss the point of what God is doing. It would like be returning to the beginning of a race because nobody had ever yet stumbled and thinking that standing at the beginning was the point. And you're like, no, the point is to run the race, to get to the end. Eden wasn't the end. To want to go back there is to miss what God is doing. But similarly, to think that we can fix the world through our efforts is also to miss the point. We are fallen. We are incapable of fixing the world that we live in. Our work for the good of the world matters, but we will never succeed in creating a utopia. The point that we arrive at is that we need God to create a new heaven and a new earth. Not to revitalize the old, but an entirely new heaven, an entirely new earth. There's a million things that could be said about this new heaven and this new earth this morning. There's lots of things that come out of Revelation 21 and 22. But I want to focus on just one simple aspect of it. One very simple aspect, but beautiful aspect of this new heaven and this new earth. To think about it well, though, we need to go back and think for a moment about something that I said a second ago. That Eden, although flawless, was incomplete. Flawless, yet incomplete. Genesis 1 and 2 
describe division after division. Division after division. Sea from land, light from dark, Eden from the west of the world, man from woman. Most significantly, a division between heaven and earth. The divisions are God's design. They're good. He's bringing order from chaos, and he uses the divisions to create harmony and beauty, things that mirror one another. The divisions are good, God's design, but each division reveals something incomplete and incompleteness. In some instances, the union that the divisions sort of long for is clear. Why the division between man and woman? This is answered in the very creation story itself, so that they can be united in one flesh, brought together This beautiful union where the identity of neither is destroyed, but perfect union comes out of the division. You see the point that if they had remained separate, the purpose of that division would never have been fulfilled. There's other instances, though, ones that we should see almost as echoes of this pattern that we sometimes overlook. We hear in Revelation that the sea is no more. And you may see and go, that is a strange phrase. Does God have an issue with the ocean? What's wrong with that? Well, the point is is that the sea throughout the Old Testament is a symbol for the chaotic world of those who do not know God. The sea and land, this division between those who know God, that's the land, and those who don't, that's the sea. And so what do you discover in Revelation? That this division has been healed and that all is land. It's a little different than the uniting of man and woman because the identity of the sea disappears. It's a division where one swallows up the other and everyone now knows God. Everyone is land. You see the point? That these divisions were used to create harmony and beauty, but they're not supposed to remain divisions. There's a uniting that's supposed to occur. And so we should be not surprised in Revelation that darkness is swallowed up in light. A division that revealed harmony was not the end. It was not the purpose. In the end, light would swallow up the other. All of this should make us think hard about the division between heaven and earth. This is the most important of these divisions. And this division between heaven and earth isn't just spatial. It actually represents a division between God and man. This is significant. Genesis 1 and 2, heaven and earth are split, divided, and we see harmony there. God brings order out of chaos, yet it's a division that reveals something deep, a separation between God and man, and it's a division that's not supposed to remain a division. It's one that's supposed to be divided so that it can result in perfect union. It's important for us to be clear. That division between heaven and earth and God and man was not an imperfection. It was not a flaw in God's creation. It didn't mean that God separated himself from men and women. After all, the paradise of Eden was a temple where God's image dwelled and God would actually come down and walk with Adam and Eve there. Even after the fall, when mankind was driven out into the wilderness, God still communicated with them. He still visited them. We think of Enoch who walked with God, 
or Abraham who saw God and heard the voice of God. Even we think of the pillar of cloud and fire, God dwelling with them in a particular fashion. We think of the tabernacle and the temple, him making his home amongst his people. I think of Paul in Acts 17 saying to pagans, in God you live and move and have your being. The point is this division does not mean that God was absent. It does not mean that God was not present with his people. But it points to an incompleteness, a type of relationship that's not finalized. That separation between heaven and earth was not the end, not the purpose, not the goal. The division between heaven and earth, between God and man, was like the beginning of the race, not the end. And to say, I wish we could go back to Eden, is to miss the point. Heaven and earth were divided at the beginning of the race, but that's not the end. Revelation 21 offers something astounding when you look at the full scope of the Bible. The Bible opens with a division between heaven and earth, a division between God and man. And it's a division that God bridges and crosses time and time again to reach his people. Even now, we have a hint of the end in the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are now the tabernacle of God, and God actually dwells in us through the presence of the Spirit. Jesus Christ promises to be present when we gather together. He promises to be present in the prayers of his people We're not distant from him. He is here now. Again, we need to think very, very clearly. It's not that God is distant or absent. He is closer to you in this moment than you are to yourself. But the point is is that we are not yet at the end of the race. And the end of the race is something new, something greater, something more. In the language of Revelation 21, It is a new heaven and a new earth. Something new, something deep. This something new, this something deep is something that in hindsight will begin to make perfect sense. God plants seeds all along the way to reveal where he's going, but we rarely grasp it until we look back in hindsight. His new creation will grow from the purified seeds of the old. It's not that this world will be thrown away like so much trash. Instead, everything we know and experience will be purified by fire. And out of that seed, that purified seed, this new thing will grow that will make perfect sense in hindsight. But on this side, on this side, his new creation is something that we can hardly imagine. It's something new, something greater, something other, something that's finally perfect, finally complete. This is what I want you all to see. Eden begins with an incompleteness. It's still flawless, but it's incomplete. Heaven and earth are separated. God and mankind are separated. God still communicates himself, but there is a distance there, a separation there. What do we see at the beginning of Revelation 21? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the point. We see in this vision the separation between heaven and earth cease to exist. This is more significant than we realize. In this vision, we see the separation between heaven and earth, that one that was good but incomplete, that one that exists in Genesis 1 where God creates order. We see that separation cease to exist. We see the heavenly city descend from the heavens and come down to the earth, and we see finally what the Bible has been longing for for the very beginning, the joining of heaven and earth, the joining of heaven and earth. It's like a marriage that finally comes after years of waiting. There had to be a separation. There had to be two distinctions. God is different than man. We are not God. And you all go, yeah, I know that. There's a separation that had to occur. But the separation is not the end. It's the marriage of the two that's the end. The uniting of the two. But you remember that heaven and earth are not just spatial. They represent us and God. And so what is this merging, this marriage truly? It is the marriage between the bride and the very Lamb of God. That's why this city, the church, the new Jerusalem is called the bride. She descends from heaven and in her there is a marriage that occurs and God is suddenly no longer separated and distant from his people. There was a closeness that this old creation hints at, but can't even comprehend. There is a uniting that we can't fathom when we are in the presence of God in a way that we have never experienced. The encouragement of this is deep. I know you all. I know myself. The people in this room long for the presence of God. They long to stand face to face with Jesus to know him, to see him, to hear his voice. We live on this side in the old creation where that division still exists, and we are given foretastes of the presence of God. We are given indications of it. But all of the things that we have received to this point are just that, foretastes, indications. They are not the end. There is deep encouragement in this. I don't know about you, but it's good news to hear, Stephen, what you have tasted so far is not the end. That there is something deeper, something richer, something fuller. That the thing that will come when heaven and earth are united is something beyond your imagination. When you listen to Paul's language in Revelation 21 and 22, it descends into ecstasy as he describes the city and the gems and the gold. All these things, that they, even the words themselves don't come close to approximating what he means. Because what we see in this vision is that finally the separation is healed. And God is with his people. 
Again, not that he's absent now, not that he's distant now, but that what's to come is so much greater that the only language we can say is he started all over from scratch. It's completely different. My point for you all this morning is that when you look at your relationship with Christ and you say, I find it lacking, I would say, amen. And if you thought you had all you needed of him, I would be praying for you. This is not the end. What God has for you is so much deeper, so much bigger, so much richer. The call of Revelation 21 is not optimistically think you can make all things work out and not pessimistically think it's all going down to hell in a handbasket. Instead, the call is hope. The Lord extends a new creation to you. It's one waiting for you, this bride adorned for her husband, and you and I are invited to that. So the call for us this morning is that in the midst of darkness, don't think that you've tasted all that there is of the presence of God. Don't think that he's given you every gift that he has. There is more that is promised, more that is to come. The ethic of the New Testament is consistently the ethic of what you are going to receive. Act now like it's true. What's waiting for you? Act now like it's coming true. My point in mentioning that, if the Lord has promised perfect relationship to you, perfect union to you, don't act as if it will never occur. Step forward into that day after day. His promises are deeper than we can imagine, richer, thicker. God will dwell with us. The tears will be wiped away. There will be more, no more darkness. We will dwell in him as he casts his tent over us. The images are beautiful. Cling to that hope. Amen.